through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus' atonement allows sinners uh, to be adopted to be adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. And that salvation allows that salvation that God has granted to those who confess with their mouths and believe by faith that Jesus is Lord and God's eternal begotten Son is not only safe from God's eternal judgment and eternal wrath, but they have been transformed into new creation. And for the last four consecutive Sundays, Pastor Gus and I have preached at some length on Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 80 which is the uh, prophecy of Zechariah that pertains to God's covenantal overarching salvation for mankind. And again, uh, the points of Pastor Gus' sermon shows us that the salvation that God has given to the church not only save our souls, but it allow us to be sanctified through Christ Jesus. Uh, Pastor Gus' sermon pairs well with today's message. And this is good. Uh, speaking of today's message, I, I'd like to remind you that Zechariah's prophecy is about the dawning of salvation. It is about God's redemptive history and how he is willing to save people for the sake of his own glory. It is about God's salvific plan for sinners. In Zechariah's prophecy, he distinguished David. You see that in the first couple of verses. Then he went on to talk about Abraham. Then he talked about John the Baptist. These three persons, David, Abraham, and John the Baptist, points towards God's unified covenant, covenantal plan to send his son Jesus so that he can procure salvation, fulfill scripture, bring glory to the Father, and elect those whom he died. For example, God made an everlasting covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 14, God said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise, raise, up for you, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Beloved, David is dead. Along with his sons. In fact, the state of Israel as of right now, is a secular, democratic nation which is far from being a monarchy. That is to say, it is no longer a kingdom. 
for a king to rule. Since this is true, how is it possible for God to establish an everlasting kingdom on David's behalf? The everlasting kingdom that God promised to David cannot exist unless God was speaking about someone who was greater than David. And a person who can rule for all eternity. And Jesus have done just that. Whenever he returns, I hope that you know, he will establish his millennial kingdom and he will rule for thousands of years. He will be Israel's everlasting king. And during the millennial reign of Christ, the remnant of the Jewish people will be saved and they will worship Jesus as their crucified Savior. And this will allow the nation of Israel to be prominent amongst other nations. And Jesus would and will fulfill the words of his father, which was spoken to David. In terms of Abraham, God said to Abraham in the midst, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, God said to Abraham, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Just as much Abraham believed by faith in God's word and God accredited it as righteousness on the behalf of Abraham was the means by which God would save all who believe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if they do, their sins will be pardoned forever. Abraham believed by faith in the promises of God's word. It's the same way that we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in God's word. As, have, as Paul has said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, it is not a gift of God. I mean, it's not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're saved by the grace of God. And the prophecy of Zechariah demonstrates this truth. Within Zechariah's prophecy, he recalls God's promises that was made to David, to Abraham, and finally, Zechariah will show us how his own son, John the Baptist, is part of God's plan that ushered in salvation.
At the time that the angel Gabriel pronounced the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah, Zechariah disbelieved the angel's words. As we all know, disbelief is a direct act of disobedience towards God. This is evident today and as it was in biblical times because as you know, Zechariah's punishment for disbelieving was that he was unable to speak for nine months until the birth of his son, John. His faithlessness left him speechless. However, after the birth of his son, he believed and instantaneously the Holy Spirit enabled Zechariah not only to speak about David and Abraham, but more importantly, he was able to speak about his son. Fathers. Zechariah had an exuberant joy for his son, and he expressed to his eight days old son how God was going to use him to help bring about the new covenant. Fathers, if you are unable to speak for many months, and you held your son or your daughter in your arms and you weren't able to talk to them, imagine how Zechariah felt at the moment the Holy Spirit allowed him to open up his mouth and proclaim and burst out with joy for his son. I hope you were following along as Melvin was reading the text uh, from Isaiah. You also in Luke. And if you were, you would have noticed, especially in Luke's gospel, that Zechariah declared three things about his own son. One, John's calling. Two, John's message. And three, John's preparation. And this is pretty much the outline of framework of my uh, sermon because Zechariah predicts the, uh, John's calling message and preparation of John the Baptist's ministry let's talk about John the Baptist calling the prophet of the most high you know when Imagine with me for a second when you held your child in your arms for the first time. You did not know the kind of life they will live. And this is true of your parents when they held you in your arms. As of now, you still do not know for sure if your child will be a good or bad citizen of, of the United States. Nor your parents had foreknowledge of what was to come about your life. Every good parent have high hopes for their children. My mom had high hopes for me, and she still do. Uh, parents want their children to be successful and have a purposeful life. 
every good parent want their children to be greater than themselves. I imagine Zechariah was filled with joy like any first-time parent would be. As he held his son in his arms and speaking prophetically to his son, he knew exactly the kind of person his son, John, would turn out to be. As we read in verse 76, Zechariah said to his son, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is John's calling. John's calling was not a secret, but it was anticipated. Zechariah probably desired his son to become a priest. Like any other father would want their son to follow up in the business. Zechariah and Elizabeth came from a priestly family. And if tradition and customs would have it, have it had it, John would have been a priest too. However, that decision wasn't for Zechariah, nor Elizabeth, nor John to make. That decision was made by God himself before the foundations of the world. Zechariah's occupation as a priest helped him to understand Old Testament scripture, causing him to have high expectations of the prophet that would go before the Lord to prepare the Lord's ways. In fact, the Jewish people knew about knew that God would send a prophet to announce the arrival of the Messiah. The only problem was that they could not identify who that prophet was. For example, in the book of John chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, the priests and the Levites came to John and they asked, who are, they asked John the Baptist, who are you? And John confessed, saying, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? Are you the prophet? John unequivocally said, no. The reason the Jewish people the, Le- the priests and the Levites, with the exception of Zechariah, who knew that John would be the prophet of the Messiah, the thought that John was Elijah is because of what is said of John and the Old Testament. Again, John's call is long predicted. It was set in motion before his birth. The prophet Isaiah predicted John's calling. Isaiah said a voice 
cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the, in the desert a highway for our God. The prophet Malachi foretold John's calling too. Malachi said, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, according to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. And when, and even in fact, and even in Luke's gospel, at the appearance of the angel, Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah inside Solomon's temple, Gabriel said similar words to Zechariah. He said, And John would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. According to Luke chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Now, Pastor John MacArthur said it this way. Like Elijah, John faithfully powerfully, boldly, uncompromisingly proclaim divine truth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that calls some to wonder if he was indeed Elijah. MacArthur further said, John was not Elijah literally, but figuratively like Elijah who preached about the commandments of the Lord, John would preach about the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. You know, all of us have answered or asked someone this question. What would you like to be when you grow up? What would you like to do or be when you grow up? When we were children, we had an idea of what type of jobs we would do for the rest of our lives. As we all know, people aspire to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, musicians, etc. Everyone wants a job that is satisfying and meaningful. I remember when I was a little boy, I vividly remember telling my mother, that I wanted to become a police officer. So she encouraged me to pray to God about that, about my ambitions. We both folded our hands and started praying to the Lord. I prayed a very simple prayer. It only took me a few minutes to pray that prayer. However, that prayer never came true. Ever. My job as a correctional officer was the only job I had that came close of me becoming a police officer. Likewise, 
it was impossible for John to fill out a job application because it was already filled out before he was born. Therefore, Zechariah's words to his son was affirming God's plan to send John as the prophet of the Lord Jesus Christ. God had predetermined that John would be from birth the prophet of the Most High. Now that's a footnote. The meaning of Most High stresses God's absolute sovereignty. But more importantly, according to John, uh, according to Luke chapter one, verse thirty-two. Jesus is called the Son of the Most High, signifying his lordship. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, therefore he understood that Mary was pregnant and had and she was about to conceive. And she had conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit so that she can give birth to the Messiah. Jesus is the Most High and John was the prophet who prepared his ways. John's calling was to was to be the prophet of the Most High. But how was he going to prepare the ways of the Lord? By what means was he to make preparations for the Lord Jesus? Simply put, the answer to these questions is John's message. His message was straight to the point. John told people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. In other words, he pleaded with people to repent of their sins because Jesus was at hand to usher in the kingdom of God. This is this is of their this is of their sin because Jesus was um, this is how John prepared the hearts of men to be ready for the Lord's coming. John's preaching was the mechanism to soften the hearts of men to accept Jesus as Lord and the Lamb of God. This is the pattern God has designed to provide salvation unto men. And this is the pattern it's found and this pattern is found throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, God sent Moses who prepared the hearts of Israel by preaching the greatest commandment of the Lord. Moses proclaimed to them, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. 
and the Lord and the, and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. All the prophets of the Lord did the same thing. Like the prophet Jeremiah. He said on the behalf of God to the people of Israel, for this is the new covenant that I will make the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. The Lord God will put his law within them and he will write it on their hearts and he will be their God and they shall be his people. The word, the Greek word, Charisma means to declare or to proclaim the deity of Jesus and Jesus' teachings. This is what all the apostles did. They charismatically proclaim Christ. This is why Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Moreover, beloved, by me preaching to you, Right now is the way God is softening your heart to surrender your will to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he uses the preacher's words to bear conviction upon those who is listening. And this is the way God designed to save people. Before you understood who Jesus is, someone proclaimed to you the truth of who he is. Someone proclaimed to you the truth that you have broken God's commandments, thereby making you a sinner who deserves hell. And someone proclaimed this truth too, that God overlooked your sins and has granted you salvation because you believe by faith that Jesus has risen from the grave and you have repented of your sins. And by so doing, you grab hold to the saving knowledge that Jesus is Lord over all, which it which means that God saved, which is the means that God has saved your very souls from the penalty of death and the penalty of God's eternal judgment. God opened your eyes to realize that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but He is also the Lamb of God, who is your Lord and your Savior. Someone proclaimed that to you. Someone preached that to you. And this is exactly what John was doing. John's ministry was ahead of Jesus' ministry. 
there uh, for at least six months. Their ministry was at least six months apart. This allowed John to make preparations for the Lord's coming by preaching baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin so that people would believe and accept John's message that Jesus is the Messiah. A good example of this is found in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Luke writes, The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. The main point of this verse is not the 72 disciples. It is not that the disciples were sent out together, two by two. The point is that the 72 disciples made preparations by traveling ahead to the places where Jesus himself was about to go. That is the point. The 72 disciples proclaim Jesus to the townspeople in which where they were. This is why they said to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They proclaim Christ and Jesus himself follow up with their message. Likewise, the Bible characterized Jesus' disciples as ambassadors of Christ. Ambassadors represent the person who sent them. And since we are Jesus' ambassadors, we are to represent Jesus by pleading and proclaiming the saving knowledge of our Lord to others. Whenever we proclaim Jesus to our community, family, and friends, it's the means of how we are preparing people to receive the Lord Jesus into their hearts. And then it is up to the Lord to affirm the message of him that we proclaim to others. That is to say, we make preparations for the Lord by giving people the knowledge of salvation. But it is up to the Lord to save them and forgive them of their sins. This is exactly how John the Baptist prepared the ways of the Lord by preaching the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. How is it possible for God to forgive people of their sins and then grant them salvation? Scripture emphatically says, Do you not know that the soul who sin die? Does not Scripture say for the wages of sin is death? 
Paul said the sting of death is sin. And the Apostle John said, all wrongdoing is sin. So how is it possible? It's possible because of the nature of God. As Zechariah has said, uh, beloved, because of the tender mercy of our God. He was willing to forgive us of our sins through the sacrificial atonement of his son, Jesus. Jesus suffered once for sin, for the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God's divine mercy allows him to be compassionate towards undeserving sinners. And don't think for one second that you and I deserve salvation because of who we are. On the contrary, we deserve hell because of who we are. When I was a kid, I, I never understood older people when they said, but by the mercy of God, the Lord delivered me out of my mess. Have you ever heard of that before? Or whatever the mess was, God's mercy delivered them. As a kid, I didn't comprehend how God's mercy delivered people from adversities. But now, I understand. I can cheer the same words I've heard those older people said. By the mercy of God, He has given me the gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we see that salvation. We see it in our text in verses 77 through 79. You know, Jesus has many titles. He is called Lord, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Christ, the scepter of Judah the Lamb of God, the author of life, the second Adam, God's holy prophet and God's high priest. But the title, as you can see behind me, Son of Righteousness, comes from the book of Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to the prophet Malachi, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Even in the book of uh, in the book of Psalms, God is pictured as the Son, 
It says in Psalms chapter 84, verse 11, For the Lord God is a son. We all, I should say, know that the sun rises every day, depending on daylight saving time. All of us go to sleep each night knowing that the sun will rise the following morning. And innately, we do not even question, nor do we doubt if the sun will rise the following morning. Intuitively, we know. At least we believe. And there is an abundance of passages that portray God as light, which is a metaphor that means salvation. It also means enlightenment. For example, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 through 25, it says that it says this about God and Jesus. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and in its lamp. It's the Lamb of God, and there will be no night there. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 3, during the beginning stages of creation, God spoke and said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then he created the sun and the moon. Furthermore, I asked uh, my brother Melvin, as he was following along, to read Isaiah chapter 60. And as you, if you were paying attention, you notice that God is portrayed as light in that chapter. And according to Isaiah 60, verse 20, it specifically says, The Lord will be your everlasting light. According to Luke chapter 1, verse 77, this is why Zechariah said, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. And he is speaking about Jesus Christ. Again, here in verse 77, Jesus is personified as the Son that visits us from on high. Because He is the Son of righteousness. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus said, We are from below. He is from above. We are of this world. He is not of this world. If you ever took a science class, you will have learned that the earth rotates within 24 hours, creating night and day. Rotates around the sun within 24 hours, uh, creating night and day. And the sun provides sun rays that gives light on the earth. 
so that the earth will not be in darkness? Everything is dependent on the sun just as much everything is dependent on Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and as Scripture says, in him all things hold together. So as you can imagine, when you read this text, Zechariah had in mind the salvation that was dawning upon the earth. He saw the Son, capital S-U-N, that was rising and it was, it was shine into world, the world's history. Yes, his prophecy was about a song about his son, John, but ultimately it was and it still is about Jesus. Zechariah knew Jesus was to be born because his mother Mary lived with Zechariah and Elizabeth for four months, excuse me, for three months. This means that Zechariah understood Mary was pregnant with the Messiah and the Savior. Therefore, Zechariah was looking towards Jesus' arrival, and John's message was about the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and God's tender mercy, which was found in Jesus, who was to come. John the Baptist could have just preached about the knowledge of salvation. He could have just preached about forgiveness of sins and God's tender mercy. And Zechariah could have just talked about that. But Zechariah's prophecy and John the Baptist's message would have been incomplete if they didn't point their listeners towards Jesus. Think about it. The problem in today's popular Christian culture is that professing Christians only preach about the benefits of what they can receive from God and uses Jesus as a lottery ticket to receive those benefits. A lot of professing Christians desire healing without suffering. They desire the comforts of life without adversities. They desire salvation without holiness. They desire God's mercy without the judgment and wrath of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ can only be good news if people hear the bad news too. Fortunately, That wasn't the case for Zechariah and John the Baptist. In fact, Zechariah's prophecy and the message of John the Baptist did indeed point people to Jesus Christ like every preacher's sermon ought to do. And as you can see in verse 79, which is the conclusion 
of the point Zechariah has made. Zechariah said to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He is speaking metaphorically. And his words are a play on words. He gives us words that has opposite meaning. For example, light and darkness have opposite meaning. That is to say, light means good, darkness means bad. Unfortunately, darkness is the condition which people willingly choose. People choose to sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And the consequences of sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death speaks to the truth that people are spiritually blind to see the light that God has given to all in Christ Jesus. People are mentally and spiritually ignorant of knowing that their sinful lifestyle is an act of rebellion against God. And in this text, darkness is a metaphorical word that demonstrates sin. And it illustrates to us how sin has affected mankind. That is to say, sin has caused people to be totally depraved. Total depravity does not mean that does not mean people cannot do good things. Sure, I am sure that Hitler did many good things, but I won't call him a saint. Total depravity means that the nature of man is sinful, which causes man's will, actions, emotions to be fundamentally sinful and unpleasing to God. Jeremiah says that, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In fact, we see this evident in our culture today. Me and my Sunday school kids was just talking about Halloween, and this is the month of Halloween, and millions of people will take their kids to celebrate Halloween. Adults, teenagers, and children would dress themselves in the lightness of darkness. In the lightness of dark creatures, mass murderers, demonic characters. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't celebrate Halloween. But I am saying that Christians should not celebrate the darkness that is portrayed in Halloween. It is far better for a little girl to be dressed as a little girl or boy to be dressed as a as an angel than a devil. Therefore, We should understand that by nature, 
people are willingly are willing are willingly drawn to darkness. And they practice works of darkness. People enjoy darkness because it is the power of sin. We can test this through our lives. We understand the power of sin. And if sin have a hold upon our hearts, we will lead into a multitude of sin. Paul says, the wages of sin is death because sin is death. Now in our verse, the concept of light versus darkness is self-evident in our world. The world light the word light expresses life. Darkness expresses death. And without light, darkness would be the reality of this world. It would be normal and it would be the standard for people. As I was thinking about this passage, I that speaks of God as light, this question came to my mind. What is the purpose of light to shine? What is the purpose of light to shine? The answer is that light eradicates, eliminates, and conquers darkness. All of us are thrilled for the invention of Edison. Uh, Thomas Edison, who created and invented light bulbs. Even to my wife, she don't like walking through the house uh, in in darkness. But me, I'm I'm saying to myself, well, I'm saving on electricity. And the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 79, applies to all of us. Because if you have escaped the darkness of death, then you were guided into the light of peace. If you accepted Jesus as the light of this world, then you are no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer condemned because God was merciful to you. Jesus said it best. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, least his works should be exposed. And John, the Apostle John also writes in 1 John chapter 
1 verse 5, he said that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Our Lord Jesus said it best again. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He further said, whosoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whosoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. According to John chapter 12, verse 44 through 46. Now, what was the what was one of the fashions? If you think about this text, light and darkness, and you apply this to yourself, ask yourself this: What was one of the fashions that God, I mean, God used to transfer us out of darkness of sin and out of the shadow of death into God's marvelous light? What was the fashion that He? What was the means? This is a good question. And I'm glad that you asked. The answer to this, to this question is what the term theologians have coined, which is the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination. God the Holy Spirit have illuminated our minds and hearts to see the light that we have in Christ Jesus. The reason we strive for holiness is because God the Holy Spirit have removed the blindfolders from our souls. And because God the Holy Spirit dwells within us, it's because we can worship, that causes us to worship God in truth. The Apostle John records this of what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Let's take some examples from these verses behind me. Psalms 118, 28. It says, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening to the eyes. Ephesians 1 verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And also Psalms 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. When I, when I was uh, in my early 20s, I remember going to the optician uh, to receive my first pair of glasses. At the time, I didn't know that I needed glasses, 
uh, to see better until my wife strongly urged me to have my eyes checked because I got into multiple car accidents that I caused. <laughs> after, I was, after I scheduled an appointment with the eye doctor, um, she checked my eyes and prescribed me some glasses. A week later, I went back to the eye doctor and the optician uh, gave me my glasses and I put it on and immediately I said to the doctor, wow, I can see. And the doctor was surprised by my response, by my reaction. She just started smiling. Her face started glowing. She was unaware that I, she, at the time, before I came in, she was unaware that I needed glasses for the last 20 years. So her reaction was warranted. I told my wife what transpired between me and the doctor. And my wife was flabbergasted. She was befuddled, confused at the sheer fact that I did not know, nor was I wise to know that I needed glasses. My wife said, Travis, how could you not know that you needed glasses? As you're laughing, as I'm laughing, my wife is laughing, we laugh about it all the time. But the principle in this story is that, and is that I, I also reminded her that just as I did not know that I needed glasses. I, I simply did not know. I was unaware. I was in darkness. Likewise, if a person believes that they are fine, how would they know that they have a disease? unless the physician told them that they are ill. How would a person know if they are doing wrong unless someone tells them? More importantly, how does a person know that they are in darkness unless light is shining upon them? You and I were blind sinners before the Lord opened our eyes to I truly see him for who he is. Were we not spiritually blind to God's light? Do you remember the first time God opened your eyes to the truth of his son, Jesus Christ? Before God enlightened our spiritual eyes, we were just as blinded as the apostle Paul who was on the Damascus Road. We know the story. Paul was traveling on Damascus Road. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ, a light that was shining so bright, it blinded him physically. And prior to Paul seeing the light of Jesus Christ, his, um, his eyes was filled with scales 
And after he came to a saving knowledge of who Christ is, those same scales from his eyes failed down. God opened, and just like Apostle Paul's eyes were, God opened our eyes so that we can now rightly interpret Scripture, that we can now understand the knowledge of salvation, You know, I know scripture is true because it never ceased to amaze me how how the science, or that is to say the repetitiveness of it, of the truth of scripture plays out. You remember the story of John Newton, the slave trader, who was a slave trader for many years. He was blind to the reality to his darkness that he was in. But when the Lord opened his eyes to see, to see the light, John Newton wrote down the famous, the famous uh, hymn that all Christians sing at least one time once in their lifetime. The hymn is Amazing Grace. And this hymn demonstrates how God has illuminated and opened our eyes to see just as much he has illuminated and opened John Newton's eyes to see and pen these words. He said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Moreover, even another famous hymn illustrates the same truth, and that is from the hymn, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus. Um, And the hymn says, O soul, are you weary in trouble? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lastly, as John's the Baptist preparation in verse 80. As I have said before, John's ministry didn't last long. It was only six months. It lasted for a short term uh, time. Now Luke, and if you actually read verse 80 and look at it, you can tell that Luke wasn't truly concerned about the childhood of John the Baptist in terms of how he was going to grow up. All we know about John the Baptist's childhood until 
his adulthood is what is written down in verse 80, which says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In Luke's gospel, we do not read of John until, uh, we don't read of John until we get to chapter 3 in Luke's gospel. And this is okay. Because this gospel of Luke's is not about John. It's about Jesus. And if John the Baptist was here today, do you know what he would say to us? He would say, my joy is complete because Jesus must increase and I must decrease. After Jesus, public, uh, after Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist knew that his ministry was coming to an end. And he wasn't bothered by, Jesus, by this discourse. He understood that his ministry was to make preparations for the Lord Jesus. From the beginning of John the Baptist's life until his death, John did one thing. He was in the wilderness. He was, he was in the wilderness preaching. Preaching about Christ until the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. When I look at verse 80, I see John's life portrays how we should be pointing people to Christ who can save their very souls. This passage is evangelistic in nature. The command to proclaim Christ to the world wasn't a command that God just gave to John, but it was a command that he gave to all of us. There shouldn't be any reason for our church or any other biblically based church in Akron to not be growing if we are preaching and teaching Christ to everyone. If we are proclaiming Christ to our community and telling people the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins, pretentiously speaking, there shouldn't be any empty seats in this church or any other churches across the United States. Trust me, I believe in prayer. If you ever come to Bible study, and I hope that you do, you will see that I am in a circle of faithful, praying people who pray constantly for the growth of this church to grow numerically, to bring more people into the fellowship of believers. And obviously, praying is, is the Christian life. It is what we ought to do. And teaching the Word of God is a gift that God has given to the church. But are we proclaiming 
the word of God to everyone. What do I mean by that? By proclaiming, preaching, broadcasting. As as I said before, the word charisma is what the apostles did. They they proclaimed Christ. Recently, my wife asked me what what was going on. I didn't tell her the direct, uh, what was going on with me. Is there anything I wanted to talk about? But I didn't say nothing directly to her. Mentally, what was what when to answer her question? What was going on? Is that it pains me to look at someone and not know the assurance of their salvation. It pains me to come in contact with a person I, I may or may not know and not know that they're safe or not. You say, what is this? Is it my business to know? Not necessarily. However, I'd rather have confidence knowing that they, are, that they belong to Christ than not know at all. should pain all of us. Jesus said, nor, Jesus said, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but only stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, we are commanded to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who, are, who is in heaven. Even the nursery Sunday school hymn rhyme, whatever it is, this little light of mine portrays that truth. and implies how we should... Always let our light shine in the midst of darkness for the benefit of others and for the sake of Christ's glory. You know how the hymn go, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you are pressed upon my heart and the heart of your people to take this message of light to declare to a dark world that needs your light. I pray that you would turn your people uh, to yourself so that they too can be revived. Because revival doesn't start outside of the church. It starts within the church that spreads outward.